Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Can I invite you to be seated and to open your Bibles to the book of, and i got to get myself to the right place, Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Pastor Kevin and Kelly are in the Metroplex area somewhere seeing their family. Cameron, their son, turned 25 some point in the last week, and so they went to spend some time with him. And uh, he also had ACL surgery about a week and a half ago, so it was a good time for them uh, to go up and see him. So uh, they'll be back next week with us. This morning we're going to be talking about um, characteristics of a thirsty soul. That's kind of funny to say because every time I get up to teach in front of somebody, my mouth gets really dry. <laughs> so um, we're gonna, I've got that working for me this morning. When I was in high school, uh, I loved playing basketball. Uh, and you guys, some of you heard me tell about my basketball career and how lucrative it was. Um, and uh, that's not funny. Um, <laughs> But uh, our, our basketball coach uh, in the offseason, I, I didn't play football in high school. I didn't really want to do that to my body. And uh, so during the f- uh, football season, it was offseason basketball. And so we, some of us who were not playing football, would have, um, we could have offseason workouts, rules have changed and that kind of stuff now. Uh, but we could get together and have practices and that kind of stuff. And I don't remember when exactly it happened, but one year in preseason, uh, my basketball coach decided to get us ready for the season Uh, to help with conditioning and that kind of stuff, he was going to insist that we all run cross-country. And I need to tell you this, if you don't know this about me, I I run, you know, to a couple of places, to the refrigerator, um, you know, to that kind of stuff. I I don't run. I'm not a runner. I don't don't get up thinking, unless a dog is chasing me or something like that. I I just, I'm not a runner. I've never enjoyed it. Um, And so when uh, when Coach said, uh, I want you guys to run cross-country, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be amazing. And it was. It was, it was truly awful. That's what it was. Um, I, I remember leaving, uh, you know, they, they, ran, they run cross-country meets on Saturday morning. They usually start very early in the morning. Um, and and I, I hated it. I really did. Every step was a, just a challenge along the way. And, and it se- would seem that all of our cross-country meets, because I went to a small school, were out through the pasture, or through the backwoods. It wasn't like on the streets, you know. Um, and so it seemed like we'd get out in the middle of this pasture, in the middle of this brushland, and this just overwhelming thirst would almost just cripple me, you know, despite the fact that I didn't want to be there and I didn't care about it and all that other stuff had that working. But I just remember being in the middle of that place, uh, running those cross-country races and being overcome with extreme thirst to the point where, I'll be honest with you, there's some of those cross-country races I stopped and walked. Um, I don't think you're supposed to do that in a foot race, but I did. Um, and so this morning we're going to be talking about the characteristic of a, characteristics of a thirsty soul. And that's the picture I get in my mind uh, when I think about when I was ever most thirsty. I was in the middle of one of those cross-country races. Uh, a book I've read recently, or reread actually, is called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Uh, and the author's name is Donald Whitney. And he describes three types of thirst. He describes... And the thirst of an empty soul, one that has never known satisfaction from a spiritual standpoint. 
one that has not ever been satisfied. He also describes the thirst of a dry soul, one that has been satisfied but is not in the moment. It's a dry soul. Uh, But then he also describes, thirdly, the thirst of a satisfied soul. And it may sound contradictory, but the satisfied soul thirsts for God precisely because that's how he's satisfied. Uh, It's like, uh, you know, if I were to say favorite restaurant or favorite meal, something would pop into your mind. And just because you had it once at some point in your life doesn't mean you never want to have it again. If someone says, I'm going to be cooking your favorite whatever, you're secretly hoping you get an invitation, right? That's what the thirst of a satisfied soul is about, is being satisfied in God and, and knowing that, um, that, that, that you want more, that you want to go to the next level, that you want to drink deep again. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Philippians chapter 3, let's read some scripture together, and then we're going to make uh, some application to our lives. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them to be worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could again, or so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the power that raised him from the dead, and I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, for which, uh, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed for me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. We're going to spend our time right there. That's good stuff. That's, that's just some really solid, strong words that Paul reminds the church at Philippi about. And I think there's some application there for us. Uh, again, some characteristics that I see of a thirsty soul. As Paul's talking, man, I, I just see, I, I, don't, I didn't know him, obviously, but the passion that he had for Christ comes across in the words of Scripture. And, and I, I detect that thirst, the thirst of a satisfied soul, but one that wants to go deeper and wants to do that. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk about five characteristics of a thirsty soul. And I hope you grab some sermon notes on the way in, uh, because that's where we're going to be this morning. The first one is this. The thirsty soul counts the cost of following Christ. The thirsty soul counts the cost of following Christ. Notice what Paul says there in Philippians 3, verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but I now consider them to be worthless because of what Christ has done. Well, what is he talking about? What are these things? Well, to, to, to know what these things are, you have to back up a few verses. Paul spends exp- extensive time in verses 3 through 6 or so in the first part of uh, Philippians chapter 3 talking about his pedigree uh, and how he would have been qualified if anybody could be qualified to have attained righteousness through some other means other than faith in Christ. He spends time talking about um, his family heritage, the, uh, his adherence to the sacraments and traditions of the Jewish faith. Uh, he talks about his education and his socioeconomic status as a Pharisee. 
Uh, he talks about his obedience to the law being faultless. He uses that word. Um, and he, he describes the fullness of zeal with which he fulfilled the law, even to the point of, uh, of persecuting and killing Christians who could not keep their own law. That was Paul. He said, look, guys, if anybody has reason to brag, it's me because I've done all of this. And then he gets to verse 7 and he says what? He says, I consider all of these things worthless. All of these things, all of these things that might, some, some might consider would, uh, would give you a leg up in righteousness. And he says, no, they are worthless because of, notice what he says in verse 7, I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. I, I think sometimes... Uh, the church does a disservice to people who are struggling with faith and they come to a place where they're at kind of a crisis of decision uh, and, and we downplay the sacrifice that's involved with following Christ. Uh, we, we make it sound like all you have to do is walk an aisle and talk to a preacher, which sometimes is scary enough. I understand that. Uh, but that's really not all of the sacrifice that is involved. It's the first step, really. Uh, because as Scripture details it very explicitly throughout, from beginning to end, uh, that the count, uh, if we're going to count the cost of following Christ, it's, it's about a lifestyle of sacrifice. Uh, do, do you see that in Scripture? It's not about an act or even a series of actions. It's about a lifestyle. Uh, it's, a, it's essentially trading your life and taking on the life of Jesus Christ. That's what coming to Christ means. And I believe sometimes that, that the church, and I think the church as a whole, does a disservice to people when we say it's just, all you got to do is walk an aisle. No, you got to give yourself up every day, moment by moment. You have to give up your desires and your dreams. You have to give up your wants. You have to give up your family, the things that you love, for the sake of following Christ. It is about total and complete Commitment is what it is. It's a, it's a transaction, an eternal transaction that takes place where you put off the old self, as Paul says in Ephesians, and you take on a new self. He also says it another place in, in Galatians where he says it like this, I have been crucified with Christ. When he says this, it, it, they're, they're think, they would have been thinking about this in a Roman day where crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. Nobody comes back from crucifixion. Nobody, when they go to be crucified, it's done, it's over. They are dead. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I think that's the level of commitment that we're talking about here. Minus this eternal transaction or substitution, the individual, you and me, we're left to pay our own sin debt. And the Bible expressly says there's only one way that you do that. You don't want to pay for your own sin debt. You don't want to be on the wrath end of an eternal God. You want to be on the grace end of an eternal God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're to count the cost of following Christ. That's the first characteristic of a thirsty soul. In the year 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez began his conquest of the Aztecs in what is now Mexico uh, with only 508 soldiers, 100 sailors, and 16 horses. And he was facing the Aztec empire of about 5 to 6 million uh, they, they were up against a grave, uh, a huge task. And, and so after they unloaded the ships and got the men and the supplies off, he gave the order that the ships be burned. He did. He set fire to his fleet, his navy, so to speak, and burned them, and they sank to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, 
And he did that so that the men got this picture in their head. There is no going back. You will either, we, we will either be victorious in this conquest or we will die trying. And I think that's the attitude with which Paul uh, describes what it means to count the cost of following Christ this morning. For each of these sections, and like I said earlier, there's five of these uh, characteristics this morning. As I was going through it, there were questions that, that started to come up in my mind. And so I've just written what I call a reflection question at the end of each of these points. And if you want to write this on your notes, that's fine. It's not on there uh, as a fill in the blank. But uh, just a point for reflection. As you consider this first uh, uh, characteristic of the thirsty soul, the count, or counts the cost of following Christ, here, here's the question that came to my mind. What have I lost for Christ? What have I given up? What have I lost? What has been taken from me? All of that is lost, whether you give it up or whether it's taken. What have I lost for Christ? If you, the, the answer to that question will, I think, unveil the level of commitment that each of us have to it. So here's my challenge to you today with each point. Take these questions and just think about them for a minute. What have I lost for Christ? Let's move on. The second characteristic of a thirsty soul is one that exalts nothing to a place of value. The second characteristic of a thirsty soul is one that exalts nothing to a place of value. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless. Remember, he's talking about those things, those achievements, that pedigree that he has. He says, all of that is worthless when compared with the infinite value. I love that word, infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else. I love the language there. It's intentional. He's not just letting it fall off to the side. He's leveling things. He's clear cutting. He's taking things out of his life that might compete for a place of value compared to his relationship with Christ. And so I think the second characteristic of a thirsty soul is one that exalts nothing to a place of value. I think we as Americans do really good at building securities into our lives. We think we, think we need things like job security and health benefits, proximity of family and friends. Those can bring security. Uh, or, or without, they can, they can cause great fear and, and great intrepidation in, in some uh, lives or some souls. Cars we don't have to maintain, bank accounts we don't have to think about or worry about, the approval and acceptance of others. Those are all some securities I see that we kind of build in. And when those get shaken, we tend to kind of waver sometimes in our faith with God. This past week I had a discussion with one of our students' parents about their recent move to Rockport and how they are living here with so much less than where they came from. But she was very quick to say, the mom of this family, you know what, God has been very faithful to us. We, we've lived with less, but we haven't gone without. Uh, and, and so she went on to talk about some of these securities, about having family and friends close around, uh, close, uh, you know, in close proximity. She uh, talked about having things like you know, medical benefits uh, and those being securities that she thought she needed to follow Christ. And, and in their time here, God has taught her and her family, you know what, I'm in charge, I'm taking care of things, I'm still your provider. Yes, you may be living with less, but you're not going to go without. See, I think the second characteristic of one that exalts nothing to a place of value just kind of lives in this mindset of comparing things constantly, eternal versus temporary. We spend a lot of time and energy on temporary things, I believe, things that gratify in the moment or maybe for a season. But, but really, do we understand what it means to invest in eternal things? 
Invest in the Word of God that has eternal benefits. Invest in uh, daily, uh, moment by moment in worship. Not attending worship experiences, so to say. Or Sunday morning worship services where there's an end to it. Um, sometimes when I do marriage counseling, uh, I ask the couple, one of the first things I ask them is, do you have a plan B? Do you have a plan B? Is there, is there an out for you? Once you get into this commitment, do you have, is there another scenario? Is there another person? Is there another place you could see yourself being? Because if there is, you should not get married. You shouldn't. You should, you should go figure out what it is you're supposed to do. If there's no plan B, if this person is your one and only, and uh, this other person is your one and only, then man, I think you have a green light to proceed. But if there's a way out, if you perceive any scenario in your head that you think you, should, you have the right to get out, I think you need to think about getting married a little bit longer. And that seems to work because essentially what I'm asking them to do is compare the relationship and the commitment, the value of it, the overall value of it to everything else that they're going to have to leave behind. And the second characteristic I hear, I think, just says, you know what, I'm not going to exalt anything to a place of value except Christ Jesus. He is it. He is my life. I don't need anything else because he's going to give me everything I need. My, the reflection question for this uh, section just very simply says this, do I value things with no eternal value? And, and this is meant for you to, again, take notes of and, and think about, do I value things with no eternal value? I need to move on. Third uh, characteristic of a thirsty soul this morning is one that lives in the full light of grace through faith. Paul says in verse 9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I am righteous, or excuse me, rather, I become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He knows. Paul is laying out in Scripture here what it means to have this thirsty soul. And I think this third characteristic lays it out where someone lives in the full light of grace through faith in Christ. What does that mean? How do you live in the light of grace? Essentially, I think that what that means is that you understand it. You, you live in, not in the darkness, you're not ignorant of grace, you're not abusive of grace, you're in the full light of it, just as I'm standing in the full light of these spotlights this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm right here in the middle of it, uh, living in the full light of grace, I think is what um, Paul talks about. As I see it, I see three negative responses to grace, usually in the church or in society. I see rejection, uh, usually based in thoughts of unworthiness. Or disbelief, I, I can't believe that, or I've done something God can't forgive me, and, and they reject grace. Uh, you've heard Pastor Kevin talk about that in recent weeks. Uh, the second one, I, I see people um, approaching grace with ignorance, whereas they see it, but they think if they ignore it, they don't have to respond to it. Uh, that's not correct either. And, and I see a third one as abuse in, in that uh, there are people, even in the church, and this, this is an attitude that um, we as individuals need to stamp out as hard as we can. The attitude goes like this, I can live any way I want because God can forgive me. Um, that's not right. That's not right at all. Um, living in full light of grace means that you understand exactly what Christ did for you on the cross. And, and so at that point, it doesn't matter what you've done, but, but catch this, it matters from that point what you do. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter what you've done, grace covers that. But when you come and you realize and you live in the full light of grace, from that point forward, it, it matters a lot what you do. 
Because what you do from that point on actually defines how well you understand grace. Each step of the way. Paul says it very clearly in Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to flip back there and just read a couple of verses. And you can write these in the margin of your notes. But this is, this is good. Uh, the, the church in Rome struggled with this. And so Paul wrote them in this letter. And he says this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Now listen to this answer. Of course not. Some translations say an emphatic, uh, no, we should not. In fact, mine has an exclamation point. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And he asked that as a rhetorical question. See, the, the third characteristic of a thirsty soul is one that lives in light of grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. Let's, let's move on to the next point this morning. And we're going to spend uh, probably the majority of the rest of the time that we have right here in this, in this point. But because I want to make sure that we understand. Uh, the fourth characteristic of a thirsty soul that I see from this passage of scripture in Philippians. Is that it hastens an intimate relationship with Christ. Hastens an intimate relationship with Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. Back in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. And he goes on to describe some other things. If you read through that, the tendency might be to just think, Paul wants to know Christ. He knows of him. But, but the, the original language here paints a very different picture, okay? Uh, the original language, this word know in the Greek is the word yada, and, uh, and it doesn't translate, some Greek words translate into the English. As far as I know, this one doesn't translate into the, into the English that well. But the word yada was used in the Greek language to describe the physical uh, marital relationship between a husband and a wife. It was, a, it was a sensual term, is what, is what Paul is using here. And of course, he may be overstating, he may be trying to make a point, but when he used this term, yada, he would have either been, uh, he would have either, uh, you know, people would have either been um, taking it the wrong way, or they would have thought him to be a pervert, honestly. When he said that, they, they would have thought that he has messed up. He is, he is just totally uh, bonkers out of his head. And he's not, mean, he's not implying that. He's using a word. We do that in the English language a lot where he's, we, we take a strong term and we use it so that it paints a really clear picture. And so that's what he says. He says, I want to know Christ. He's not talking about knowing an address. He's not talking about knowing a phone number. He's not even talking about so, knowing someone's name. He's talking about an intimate, personal relationship that he wants to have with Jesus Christ as Lord. And he describes it there in verse 10. I want to know him. I want to know the mighty power that raised him from the dead to, su to suffer with him and sharing in his death. Uh, and this illustrates, I believe, for us the, 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 the uh, difference between disseminating information and, and having firsthand real personal knowledge um, that, that you might know with someone. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Uh, we bought a, a house back in February in Peninsula Oaks, and it's a great place. We love it. Uh, have a neighbor on the, on the left side, if you're looking out the front door. He's, uh, he's probably about a 65-year-old Hispanic male. Okay? Across the street, there's a lady. Uh, her name is Miss Looney. Um, she's a, a, one of the uh, librarians at the Rockport Fulton Middle School here in town. 
uh, know a little bit more about her. Her husband, is, his name is J.D., and he's a long-haul trucker. Um, he drives a big purple rig that he parks out in front of my house for you know, weeks at a time. I know more about them. Down the street, there's a family. Uh, they're the Ashcraft family. And uh, work with Vern on staff here at Coastal Oaks. Kevin does sound with us, sings in the choir. Uh, I, I know their family. Uh, we, we've ate with them. We've prayed with them. We've served with them. We, we've been to their house. You see the difference there? You see how each of those is different? One I just know about. Another I know a little bit more. And then we have an intimate relationship growing still with our friends down the street. See, I think that's what Paul is saying here. And he says it, uh, uh, you know, in such a way where he says the, the, the language is, uh, the, the point I chose to t- say was to hasten. You know what it means to hasten? To chase after. To, to, to work at it. And so I want to say this to you this morning. As intimacy with Christ grows, it leads to a growing thirst. Really, that's what we were talking about at the very beginning, that, that satisfied soul, but that, that, that soul that's still thirst. Um, as, as intimacy with Christ grows, it leads to a growing thirst, peaceful satisfaction, and the desire to know him more at the same time. When we hasten that intimate relationship with Christ, it grows. We work at it, it grows, it doesn't stay the same. And it comes to a place where we, we at the same time, possess peace in knowing that Jesus is all we need. But we possess that with the desire to know him more every day. See the difference there? Not knowing about, it's knowing in person. A couple of just scriptures that you can jot down in the... um, margin of your notes. In the Old Testament, the, God uses the prophets, uh, Hosea and Isaiah, uh, to illustrate this to the Old Testament, uh, about the Old Testament Israelites, the, the, the God's people in the Old Testament. In Hosea 4 and 6, 4 and verse 6, he, he says this, he says, my people, this is God speaking to the Israelites through Hosea, he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. This word, knowledge, It's the exact same word that Paul uses in Philippians. It's Hebrew to Greek, so it's a little bit different as far as the language, but the meaning is the same. So what Hosea is saying, the message he's delivering to the people of God is that we suffer and we die because we don't know God intimately. That's a good word for the church this morning. Isaiah 1 and verse 3, Isaiah delivers a similar message at the very beginning of his book. The ox knows its master, the donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Church, if we are to know our God, it comes through an intimate personal relationship, faith in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know about. We have to know him ourselves. It's not enough to know him on the pedigree of your parents or your grandparents. It's not enough to know him uh, by proximity. You come to church here, you worship with him, with us. It's about an intimate, personal relationship that you yourself have to decide. Let's finish up this morning quickly. Uh, last uh, characteristic, well, let me say this real quick. I didn't give you a reflection question. Does the level of intimacy you have with Christ continue to grow? Do you want to know him better today than you did yesterday? Do you want to know him better tomorrow than you do today? Do you want to know him more? Does it continue to grow? 
And if so, I think that if the, if the answer there is positive, then I think that's good. It's, it's hastening an intimate relationship with Christ. Let's move on to the last point. The fifth and final characteristic of a thirsty yet satisfied soul is that it is mindful of the promised reward. It's mindful of the promised reward. Notice what Paul says down in Philippians chapter three, where our original passage, verse 14, he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ, or through Christ Jesus is calling us. He, he, notice Paul's not looking side to side for any reward. He's not looking across the aisle. He's not looking to his friends. He's not looking for, again, to his pedigree. He's not looking to his family. What does he say? He says, my print is way too small in my Bible. <laughs> he says, I've reached the end of the race and received the heavenly prize. He's not looking side to side. He's not looking horizontally. He's looking vertically. He says, I'm going to press on and receive uh, and get to the end of this race, and I'm going to receive a heavenly prize. And, and, and almost with the attitude that if I receive no earthly prizes, that's fine. You know, when Paul penned this letter, you know where he was? He was in a prison cell. He had been arrested for preaching the gospel. And it wouldn't have been the first or the last time. So in this, he says, <laughs> I love this, mindful of the promised reward. I, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this because I love Jesus Christ. He's mindful of the eternal reward. Um, and, and, you know, the, I guess the question that came to my mind was, what is the reward of heaven? You know, scripturally speaking, I think that scripture points to two um, realities of heaven. Being submerged in the, in the presence of God and being face-to-face -face with Jesus, the one who paid our debt. And, and I think really anything else that we try to assign to heaven is just us wanting something there. Um, but those two things, scripture lays out for us very plainly. Uh, the reward of heaven, being submerged in the presence of God. Be, being as real as the shirt on your back. And being face to face with Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died for my sin but didn't stay dead, was resurrected and showed power over the grave. Be mindful of the promised reward. Your reflection question for this is, what do I hope to experience in heaven? What do I hope to experience in heaven? I hope that you hope to experience the submer being submerged in the presence of God and being face to face with Jesus because that's going to be the two greatest things there. That's going to be the two greatest things there. I love how the language that Paul uses all throughout this passage, and I hope you can see it, the characteristics of one who thirsts after God. So my questions as we wrap up this morning is, do you, do you know Christ? Do you want to know him more? Do you just know of him? Or do you have an intimate, personal, daily relationship with him? Paul outlines some great characteristics for us in Scripture. I think it's time for us to spend some time reflecting on those and respond accordingly. So let's pray together, all right?